And let's go to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look tonight at verses 9 down through verse number 20. We had a good introductory lesson last week and appreciated the participation from everyone. Um, But tonight we carry on. Really, we're still in the first chapter and it continues a lot of introductory themes. So let's just start with this idea tonight, the key concept, as you're going to see that on uh, on the handout tonight. The key concept is this. There is a threefold application to the book of Revelation, okay? And that is that we are looking at things past, things present, and things future. So we're looking at past, present, and future. In fact, what you can do is skip down to verse number 19, and you'll see what I'm referring to there in verse number 19, Verse number 19, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which, excuse me, let me find my place again. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So you see the three themes there, right? Past, present, and future. The things which, the things that you've seen, the things which are, and the things that are going to be hereafter. So by the time we get done tonight, you're going to see that that is the, the, the focus, the threefold application in the book of Revelation. But right now, turn with me to verse number 9, and let's pick up there. So verse number 9 is where we left off last week. Last week, we introduced the idea that there are the seven churches, and this week, we pick up a little more specific. Now, I had some graphics and things I wanted to show you tonight, but my... Um, ability to operate the screen is really not working. I'm going to try one more time. If it doesn't work, you'll just have to use good old-fashioned imagination. So, see if I'm back in business or not. I don't think that I am. Give it one more, one more attempt here. All right, and we do not. So, oh well, that's it for the cool graphics. They'll have to go away. When I was in Bible college, it was a slide, uh, not a slide projector. It was a, yes, they were still using transparencies, and they'd flip that thing over and just, do uh, you know what a transparency is, Mike? <laughs> not a clue. Well, they used them. They were a thing. They're a, they're a famous artifact that you can dig up uh, in history. Huh? I know what mimeograph pages are. I absolutely do. Wow, I've never had so much participation. This is great, you know. Hieroglyphics, okay. Uh, Awesome. Well, let's look here. Verse number nine. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. You notice this is like the third time that John the Apostle is mentioned. If you look back in verse number one, at the end of verse number one, signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. You look down at verse number four, he introduces himself again, John, to the seven churches. And then in verse number nine, I, John, who am also your brother. 
There should be little dispute as to the authorship of the book of Revelation. It's been made abundantly clear to us. And so we're reminded of the Apostle John and who he was. We talked a little bit about that last week. Now, here's how he describes himself, though. Notice in verse number 9, he says, I am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. You know, in the book of, in the epistles of John, 2 John and 3 John, he refers to himself as the elder. But here, he refers to himself as their brother, as their companion. And what is it that he's pointing out as significant? What is this brotherhood that he's describing? Obviously, they're brothers in the Lord, but he's giving a little bit more specific, uh, specifics to what this brotherhood, what kind of a brotherhood is he describing? A brotherhood of what? Yeah, a brotherhood of, of tribulation, a, a brotherhood of a brotherhood of patience. That word patience in verse nine is the idea of endurance, the patience of Jesus Christ. They're a brotherhood that are the believers at this time. The persecution of the church is beginning to intensify. Remember, this is written when John is a very old man. Most probably all of the other apostles have already died. And John is the last one of the original 12 apostles. John is the last one left. And the church now is entering its major, the major persecutions that began with Nero. And a succession of 10 emperors would bring heavy Roman persecution on the church for over 200 years. And John is preparing them. He's saying, I'm your brother in this difficulty. I'm, in, I'm your brother in this tribulation. But obviously, we know the book of Revelation is going to point to the fact that that the believers will be delivered from the difficulty, from the tribulation, from the, uh, and we will endure with the power of Jesus, and that whatever we might go through is not to compare to what the world is about to face. So he begins by talking about being the brother and companion in tribulation. He talks about this endurance and this patience in Christ Jesus. And now we're given the location in verse number nine. This vision was given to John while he was in the isle that is called Patmos. Now, this is, I was intending to show you the map here this evening, but Patmos um, is, if you think of those, uh, the map that we saw Sunday of modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, where the, the churches are that the letter's going to, you have, all of, you, you have Asia Minor, and then over here in between Asia Minor and Greece to the north, you have the little isle of Patma, Patmos. Now, it was common in the day for the Roman government to exile people to islands. Now, we don't have a lot of evidence as to how often Patmos was used, but it's generally believed that Patmos was almost a penal colony, or it was a place where the apostle was sent in exile. Now, he's writing this letter, and the, the geography is, is significant because he is exiled. He is exiled close to Asia Minor, where these letters are going to be sent. In fact, Ephesus would be the closest of these major cities. Ephesus would be the closest city to the Isle of Patmos. And so that is where John is. Now we come to a very interesting statement in verse number 10. I was, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. 
Anybody, any thoughts on what is the significance of I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day? What is he referring to there? There's a couple of possibilities. Yep. He was. He would definitely, I think, that is would be right. He's in the Spirit. He's in a worshipful posi- place. Any other thoughts on that? In the Spirit on the Lord's day. What would the Lord's day be a reference to? Anybody? Sunday, maybe? The first day of the week? That's a that's a pop, popularly held idea. The only issue is the Lord's Day was not at the time. Sunday wasn't referred to as the Lord's Day. That was a, that was a that was a description that would come later that Sunday would be referred to as the Lord's Day. So it's possible that this is an early reference to that the Lord's Day being the first day of the week, but uh, not necessarily. In the spirit on the Lord's Day. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it, it would refer to Saturday. If it was referring to a day of the week, it would most likely be Resurrection Day, the Lord's Day, Sunday. But one possibility that I'm gonna, I'm leaning very strongly toward in understanding this is when he says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. First of all, he's in the Spirit in the sense that he's about to see a heavenly vision, right? So, in fact, the whole rest of the book of Revelation, he is going to, in a sense, be caught up. He's going to see visions. He's going to see things spiritually. He's going to see things with spiritual eyes that were not physical things on that Isle of Patmos. And interesting, this idea of the Lord's Day could be could signify the idea of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So one possible interpretation of this verse is this. I had a, a, a spiritual vision of the day of the Lord. I was in the spirit in the Lord's day. Now that that possibility, I would lean toward very strongly. And that, that is because the day of the Lord, and this is a note on your handout, the day of the Lord is going to be a key concept as we move forward in the book of Revelation. What are we talking about? What would we talk about when we when the Bible refers to the day of the Lord? Does anybody know what is the what is the day of the Lord? Yes. Okay, so it, it, the the return of the Lord would be wrapped up in that. What else does anybody know about the day of the Lord? So judgment. Yeah. What else do we know about the day of the Lord? Anything? We'll study it in more detail in the future, but it is it is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. The prophecies in the Old Testament are filled with descriptions of the day of the Lord. Now, and it always signifies some kind of judgment, God's judgment, whether it's on Gentile nations or it's speaking of the coming final judgment. This idea of the day of the Lord is going to be significant. In fact, we know from Paul's writings, we'll study this in future weeks, that when he says that that day shall not come except there be a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, so that we believe that the rapture of the church is going to happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So understanding the day of the Lord is going to be significant. My belief is that when you study the book of Revelation, as you get to chapter 4 and following, John is seeing the unfolding of the day of the Lord. And he's seeing a vision of the the unfolding of that, what the Bible calls great and terrible day 
of the Lord, beginning in Revelation chapter 4. And so we're going to study that in a little bit more detail, but very possible here, I think this statement could be when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, that this could be a reference to that. But in this moment, he sees, he hears a voice and he sees a vision. Look at verse number 11, saying, so I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega. What is Alpha and Omega? It's the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. Alpha, Omega, A to Z. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So we looked at these churches on Sunday morning, and we'll continue to look at them uh, in the coming weeks. But these seven churches, we see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia and Laodicea. He says, write and send this letter. So the book of Revelation is addressed to these seven churches. I want to give you this tonight. I'm going to give you two views. Just like last week, I gave you four views on understanding the whole book of Revelation. And tonight, I want to give you two views on understanding the seven churches. How many of you have ever studied the seven churches before? Okay. Two views. Now, we need to start with the understanding that these are literal actual churches. At this time, you could have gone to Ephesus or Smyrna. You could have gone to these cities and you could have met the churches. You could have met the, met the members of the churches and, and the pastors of the churches. You could have worshiped with them if you were there. So these were actual literal churches. They had strengths. They had weaknesses. They were in some ways on fire for the Lord in other ways cold. They, they, some were strong, some were weak. They're actual literal churches. But some have supposed, some have supposed that these seven churches are representative of seven major ages in church history. How many of you have ever heard that before? Okay, that these seven churches are typical of seven major themes throughout church history. Um, and there are some interesting parallels as you, if you study that and people compare the, they compare the the history of the different ages of the church. And therefore, they would put us today, most people that do that would say, today we are living in the what age? Yeah, the Laodicean age. So you've heard that before. Um, I don't su subscribe to that line of thinking. I, I don't think that that's a, a good interpretation. It's got some serious problems. Can anybody think of some serious problems with that view of the book of Revelation? I mean, so, or, or strengths. Maybe you're a proponent of it and you've got some strengths and you could convince me. But, yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think to answer that, we know that it's that just like the scriptures are written to churches like the church in Rome or the church in Ephesus, we know that it has significance beyond just the local church, right? So there is some significance beyond the local church. So you, I, I get your point there, but what else? What were you going to say? Well, I 
Yeah. So the problem, the main problem with that view is it's an entirely Western view of church history, right? It's tracing church history. The people that, that advance this view that these are representative of ages, they're looking at from the Roman Empire to the Roman Catholic Church to the Reformation to the modern age, which we live at today, which is a view of church history that is exclusively a Western view of church history. Whereas today, there are more Christians in the East than there are in the West, believe it or not. The church in, the church in China, the church in Africa is growing and expanding dramatically. And as Bill said, there's more persecution today of Christians than there has been in any time. So while we may look at our American church and say, oh, it's the Laodicean age for sure, if you go to other places in the world, I dare you to say that the millions of Christians in, in China are Laodicean Christians. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I wouldn't say they're, they're lukewarm and spew them out. So that's one of the problems with that view. Yes, sir. Right. Right. That there are, we see that with missionaries. There are places that our missionaries go that they, they spread the gospel seed and there are great revivals happening. So one of the problems with this view that these churches represent a sequential age is that it's a very Western outlook. Plus, the scriptures give us no indication that we should interpret it that way. There's nowhere... There's, there's no, most of what's, what is spoken about says the thing, uh, that these things are going to come to pass, whereas right to these churches, he says, that exist right now. So that's another problem with that, with that particular view. So the view that I think is, is the most correct view, that would be the biblical view, is that these are literal churches, obviously, we start there, but they would then become representative of types of churches and believers that have existed all throughout history. That you can go to places and you can find churches that have things in common with Philadelphia. And you can go to places and you'll see Laodicean churches for sure. And you'll go to places where the church is persecuted, like in, like in Smyrna. You can go to all of the, you can, you can find these seven churches at any point in church history. You can find these seven churches and the, the, Instruction is given as we're looking at the whole theme of our series on Sunday mornings is to look at those churches and say, hey, let's learn the lessons of the lampstands. Let's keep our light shining brightly. So I would view these seven churches as both literal churches and representative of all of the types of churches that can and have existed all throughout history. And so we come now to verse number 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. But before he, saw, before he saw the face of the voice, he saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, if you're thinking of just a, uh, you know, a, a little candle as a candlestick, you've got to understand these are lampstands. So think of a candelabra. Think of a menorah. So he, he says, I see seven lampstands, seven candlesticks. And so we know that the churches, the churches are the candlesticks. In fact, if you skip down to verse number 20, verse number 20 says this, it's, it's 
gives the summary, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches, are the seven churches. So the seven candlesticks, the seven lampstands. So, and again, we've spent a lot of time on Sunday talking about that, so I won't do it again. Now, we come to verse 13, and there's so much packed into these next few verses. Verse number 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, that's a key, key title right there. The Son of Man. He was clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Do you remember later on, what did it say? We read in verse 20, what are the seven stars? The seven stars are what? They're angels of the seven churches. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. This is a depiction of Jesus in his glorified state. Now, I don't believe that Jesus always looks like this necessarily. I think some of this is for the effect of the vision to teach something about who he is. I'm not so sure that if we, if we saw Jesus right now that there would be a sword coming out of his mouth, etc. I'm not sure, but that, that would be what I would surmise. But nonetheless, in his appearance to John, this is what John sees. Now you tell me, what is significant about the title of Jesus in verse number 13, the Son of Man? What is significant about when John says, I saw one like the Son of Man? Yeah, so the, the most common title for Jesus to refer to himself, he would refer to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus was referred to as the Son of Man, also as the Son of God, or the Son of, what else? Son of Mary, sure. What else? It's another significant title. So you've got Son of God, Son of Man, Son of... We just did a whole Sunday morning series on this. Son of, yeah, Son of David. All these titles. And so typically we think of Son of God as a reference to his what? His deity. And we think of Son of David as a reference to his, his royalty, his kingship, his messiahship. And then... We think of Son of Man as a reference to his humanity. And I was, I was often taught that. But you remember there was a scene where Jesus, and, and I think you'll find this in Mark chapter 4 if I have the reference right, where Jesus is going to heal, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, and he's going to heal the man, but before he heals him, he says, Your sins are what? Your sins are forgiven. And Huh? Mark chapter 2. Okay. 
In Mark chapter 2, it's very early. Jesus is announced. Remember, Jesus early in his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he goes into the temple and he reads the prophecy from the Old Testament and he says, this day the scripture is fulfilled. And then he goes, very, around that same time, he goes to do this miracle and he says, your sins are forgiven you. And they say, whoa, wait a minute. Who can forgive sins except for God? And Jesus says, well, which, which is easier? Your sins are forgiven or, you know, be healed, rise and walk. And he says, but so you'll know that the son of man has power to forgive sins. They say, rise and walk. They knew when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, they knew their scriptures. He wasn't just referring to himself as a son of man, like son of a man, son of a woman. He was claiming a messianic title. And what he's doing is saying, as Messiah, I am also son of God. Because that was something that was unclear to the Jews. And, and they were okay with the Messiah, but what was unclear to them was that the Messiah was also son of God. Now, this, this prophecy showed it, but, but he made that clear. So, in the description, you've got to see this. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7, because everyone would have been very familiar with Daniel chapter number 7 and Daniel's vision. Daniel 7. And look with me at verse number 9. This is Daniel's vision. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was as the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. We'll save this for many weeks to come. Now skip down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like what? The Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man in this passage, clearly? Jesus. Who is the Ancient of Days? Huh? The Father. So, the Father is the Ancient of Days. We're going to see this scene play out in, in Revelation 5. You know, we saw this, who's worthy to open the book, and and, and all of this, there's given him a throne. So the, so the Ancient of Days, the Father is seated on the throne. The Son of Man comes and is given 
the power and authority of the kingdom. But did you notice something? If you were paying attention, did you notice some similarities from what we read in Daniel 7 and what we read in Revelation? I see a couple of you shaking your head. What were the similarities you noticed, Miss Kathy? Right. The description of his appearance. Except, except what? Who's being described in, who's being described in Daniel, and who's being described in, and who's being described in Revelation? You shaking your head back there. Right, not the Son of Man. And in Revelation, it's the Son of Man described. But they're both described how? Very, very similarly. Would you not agree with that? You with me there? So what's going on here? We just got a couple of prophets that are a little mixed up. Who's who here? Or, or, or <laughs> you don't think so, Ken? Huh? <laughs> I don't think so either. I know not so. Huh? Yeah, I think it's because... I think it's because it's father and son. And so you have a full vision of the father and, and you have a full vision of the father as the ancient of days in Daniel. And now you have a complete revelation of the son in the book of Revelation. And wouldn't you know, they look pretty similar in, in John's vision. They can take on the same appearance because the essence of the sonship of Jesus is that Father and Son are one and of the same essence. They share distinct identities, but the same nature as Father and Son. So we see both the Ancient of Days and both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man in Daniel, and now in Revelation we see the Son of Man also described similarly to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter seven. So now look back in Revelation. And look at verse, look at this description. And you tell me, you think about it with me. And I believe that though we're not given explicit comparison, I think as you look at this, you can see attributes of Jesus in the description of who he is. Now, again, we can't be dogmatic about it, but I think there's some powerful imagery here. So in verse 12, in the middle of the verse being turned, I saw... The candlesticks, verse 13, in the midst of the candlesticks, one like the Son of Man. First of all, he's clothed with a garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. Anybody on that? What does that imagery speak to? Yeah, I think it speaks to his priesthood. He's described in, in the, as the priests were, they wore the flowing robe all the way down to the feet and they had their girdle. I think this is, this is speaking of what the writer of Hebrews sees in the the. The, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, the great high priest. So I think this description with the garment and the golden girdle speaks of his priesthood. And then you come down and you see verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Any ideas on what that would be speaking of? Any any thoughts on the, the whiteness of the head and the hairs, white like wool? Yeah. I think it could be, I, I, I saw somebody say holiness or sinlessness. I think that's a possibility. 
could very, very well be, be that. I think there's another possibility too. Yeah, I think eternality. Like we think of the, 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 the white hair from, and the idea of the Ancient of Days and, and there was no whiter hair than had ever been seen. That he, I think it, my personal opinion is that this could speak to his eternality. That he is the before time and he's outside of time. Yes, sir. Yeah, a, or a, sim, a, a, a similar image to this because they saw Jesus in his glory at the transfiguration. You're right. So we've seen the garment with the golden girl speaks of his priesthood. I think the head and hair speak of him as, as eternal, just one with the Ancient of Days because they both had that same description. And then it says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. Anybody thoughts on what that would be a reference to? Or you got something, Bill? Right. The lamb, yeah, that's good. We know that Jesus appears in different different ways too, because we'll see in later in Revelation he appears literally as a lamb. So all kinds of imagery. Um, so what about the eyes as a flame of fire? Yeah. His wrath, I think you're right, because uh, John the Baptist would say, there comes one after me. He's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. With fire, he'll purge the floor. The fire, I think, speaks of that he is not coming as a lowly babe in a manger, but he's coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on his enemies, as the, uh, as the other apostle said. Yes? Right. Can't lie to, to the eyes of fire. Sees right through. Yeah. It may be. I'd have to double check that. You might be right. Feet like fine brass in a furnace. Feet like fine brass in the furnace. Any thoughts on this one? Well, the brass or the bronze, what was the, there's a, um, the, the altar in the Old Testament was overlaid. So this could be a reference to his sacrificial work, potentially. The idea of this, this, uh, this furnace of brass, brass that he went through the furnace of the wrath of God on our behalf. That's a possibility. Any other thoughts on that one? Again, some of this we don't we don't know for sure. We're just comparing what we know of Scripture and and trying to take it all in. All right, the voice as many waters. The voice as many waters. Any any thoughts on that? We think of his voice. I think many waters is the just the the, the power of it, right? His majesty and his glory. Just like you, you, you when you're at the ocean, all you hear above everything else is his voice. And his power. So I would think of this as reference to his, to his mighty power, his omnipotence, the sound of his voice, his creative power. Any other, anybody else, anything on that? Yeah. Uh, what, what this 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are you saying there's significance or it's just cool? <laughs> it's, it's, I think, yeah. They, either way, it's, it's overwhelming. The, the trumpet catches our attention and the powerful sound of as water. Yeah, Bill. Niagara Falls, yeah. I can, I can, authority. Yeah. Water does what it wants. Yeah. His word. Um, his word will accomplish whatever he sends it to do. It will not return void. And then the stars in his hands. This one's kind of cool. I had never really thought about this one before. He's holding the stars in his hands. What are the stars? What are the stars? The angels. The Greek word angelos. Some say, you know, it it can mean messenger, but it's almost always referring to 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 a heavenly messenger. The angels. So some people say these are the seven pastors of the churches. I tend to take a more literal interpretation of this that there is some significance that there is an there is a why not that there we know the angels look into the deeds of the church why can't a church have its own angel i'm i'm going with it i'm saying it does so you want to disagree with me we can get to heaven and settle it out then but i'm saying that when he says the seven angels of the seven churches i think there's an angel watching over that church ministering the bible says in the book of hebrews what are the angels are they not ministering spirits they're sent to minister to us. So I don't think we should try to like, well, when he says the seven angels, they're really messengers, which, you know, I think they're angels. They're heavenly beings that are the messengers of the churches to, to, to do God's work among us. I don't think it's far-fetched to, to, imagine, to, to say, and probably we don't think about it enough, that God has dispatched heavenly beings on behalf of this church and on behalf of our Christian lives. Anyway, so think about the imagery. Jesus holding in his hand what? The angels. And what does he do? He just (laughs) sends them where he wants them. And as powerful as we know that man is created a little lower than the angels, but Jesus Christ, who became a little lower than the angels, now back in his power, he holds the angels, the stars in his hands. That's, I think that's really cool. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. I I think we do not have enough information to speculate on that. I think it's it's left very vague so that we know that there were seven angels for the churches as I said, some people interpret that as the messengers, the because angel can mean messenger and they'll say that these were the seven pastors of the churches, the the ones responsible to deliver the message. Um but I believe that they would be literal, literal heavenly angels. But how they function and what they do, we're left in a bit of a mystery concerning that. Yes, sir. Right. Exactly. 
And then you compare that with the, the, the scripture that says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels to become like us, but now he's glorified, now he holds them in his hand. So, and then we come to, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I think we know this, right? This is what? It's a reference to his word, the word of his mouth. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And his, the, uh, the sword of the word of God. It also, I think, speaks to his, he's coming with the sword. He's coming in judgment. And then his countenance was like the sun. What does that speak of? Yeah. I think it speaks of his glory and his holiness because the brightness of the glory of the Lord is a theme throughout the scripture. Moses, what happened when Moses got just a glimpse of God's back? What happened to Moses? His face glowed. He had, he had to wear a veil over his face. The, the picture of Stephen gazing up into the glory. This is the, the brightness, the, the brightness of his presence, his glory and his radiance. In him was light, and the light was the life of men. The light shined in darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. In him is, John would write, in him is no darkness at all. The perfect, the perfect brightness of the glory of the Father in Jesus Christ. Well, when John sees all that, surrounded by his glory, what does he do? He falls on his face as dead. There was this song written a long time ago. I've picked on this song a lot. It's, I probably shouldn't do it, but there's that song written, I think it was in the 90s, where, you know, when I, when I surrounded by your glory, what will I do? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? I can only imagine, right? Well, I get the sentiment of the song. It's probably helpful. But the truth is, when we're surrounded by his glory, what has every person who's ever been surrounded by his glory do? They just fell down fell down on their, on their face. And that's what John does. But as John falls down, and as he's completely overwhelmed, what does Jesus do? He takes his right hand. What does the right hand signif uh, signify? Power, authority, dominion. He takes his right hand, he puts it on him, and he says what? Don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid. That right hand that is coming to judge the world, the right hand that's going to bear the sword of judgment, comes to the believer, comes to the beloved apostle, and says, John, you, 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 my beloved, don't have to be afraid of me. Wow. So good. He laid his right hand on him.
saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Speaking that, the scriptures say that it will be Jesus who judges the world. People have this idea that we fear the Father, we love Jesus. It's a mis, that's misconstrued. Jesus says that the Father hath given all judgment to the Son. That it's Jesus who's coming to judge the world. He has the keys of hell and death. And then he says in verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, John pays attention when he hears what Jesus says. And I think what you have here is the explanation of all that we're about to study. John, write the things that you have seen. What did you see, John? Well, he just told us this amazing vision he's seen of Jesus. He's seen Jesus. Write those things that you've seen. Now I want you to write about the things that are. Well, those would be what we read about the churches. Chapter 2, chapter 3, we have all of the churches. But once you get to chapter number 4, there's no mention of a single church ever again in the book of Revelation. So I believe you have the outline here of the book of Revelation. Write about what you've seen, John. Write about the things which are. That's the churches from Ephesus to Laodicea, chapters 2 and 3. And then write about the hereafter, the coming events, the day of the Lord, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the millennial reign, the new heaven, the new earth, all the things that are coming hereafter. And we've only just begun to study it. Thanks for being here tonight and thanks for participating. I enjoyed, I enjoyed our Bible study together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the time we've had in your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just bless the, bless us for reading and studying it as you promised to do in this very book. I pray that it would, our perspective on who you are and what you're about to do, I pray that it would change the way that we live. So we thank you and praise you for this time in Jesus name. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.